0: Bismillah rahman rahim alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa sallallahu Wabarakala sallam, wa baraka ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam, Allahumma alimna ma yanfa'una, wa anfa'ana bima alamtena, wa zidna min fadlika ilman wa ta'aleema, innaka ala kulli shay'in qadir wa ba'd. Assalamu This is lesson 84, correct? Less than 84. Alhamdulillah, we're getting closer and closer to 100. And as I said before, to some of you, this is 83, okay. Uh, As I said to some of you before, the intention is to hopefully end this at 115. Or right before Ramadan, whichever one comes first, inshaAllah. So we... Have been speaking about Uhud for quite a long time, and in the past couple of weeks, we've been speaking about the after effects of Uhud, the reverberations of Uhud, and the impact it had not just on the morale of the Muslims but also on the attitude of others, not just Quraysh but also the outlying tribes among the Bedouins, who weren't living in the cities. We talked about how this impacted their impression of the Muslims, thinking that maybe now there is something of a target of opportunity given what happened at Uhud. And last week we spoke about the Ghazwa of Hamra al-Asad, in which the Prophet Sallallahu along with others, to camp out of this area to make sure that Quraysh weren't coming back to attack again. And the Prophet ﷺ joined them uh, after some days and they camped out there for three nights. And last week we talked about uh, another incident, uh, the incident of the well of Rajir, where... Some of the Sahaba, 10 of them, were double-crossed through a trick and were killed or captured. And we spoke about that last week. Now, what's going on here is, after Uhud, people are not fearing the Muslim community in Medina like they were before Uhud. And that... Attitude shift occurred not just with the Bedouins, but also with the Jews of Medina, and it emboldened the hypocrites The hypocrites manifested very clearly right before Uhud when 300 people left and now after Uhud, those hypocrites are more emboldened to say things and express their animosity and some of the Jewish tribes are also expressing that animosity particularly Banu Nadir, and we're going to speak about them next week insha'Allah ta'ala because they broke the treaty after Uhud. Today we're going to talk about two incidents that occurred in the fourth year after the Hijrah, shortly after Uhud and these incidents. We're going to talk about the Sariyyah of Amr ibn Umayyah al damri to assassinate Abu Sufyan, and we're going to talk about the greatest massacre that took place where the largest number of companions were killed. And that is the massacre of Bi'r Ma'una. So let's start with the Sariyah of Amr bin Umayyah al-Dhamri. When the companions were killed at the well of Ar-Raji' and the news reached the Prophet sallallahu he had to respond. A response was in order. So he sent this Sahabi, Amr bin Umayy al damri to Mecca on a special mission to assassinate Abu Sufyan. Along with Amr was another Sahabi. They traveled together. A Sahabi by the name of Jabbar ibn Sakhar from the Ansar. There's a backstory to this mission, and ultimately it was an unsuccessful mission. Obviously, it didn't happen, but there's a backstory to that which led the Prophet ﷺ to send these two companions on this mission. Some of the reports in the Seerah mention that the immediate reason for the Prophet ﷺ sending Amr was because Abu Sufyan himself, after Uhud, Attempted to send an assassin to Medina to kill the Prophet. And this is that story. This would be assassin was a Bedouin man who answered the call of Abu Sufyan when he said to the people of Mecca, Who will assassinate Muhammad so we can get our revenge? Because he is still walking about in the marketplace. Who will get revenge for us? So this man, this unknown Bedouin man, he comes forward and he says, if you pay me the right price, I'll go and assassinate him myself because I know the roads really well and I also have a dagger, a sharp dagger that is as delicate as the smallest wing feather of an eagle. They use these really nice words. Think of an eagle and the feather of an eagle. He's saying that this dagger is very sharp and very delicate, is very precise. So he has the exact tool he needs to get this job done. And he tells Abu Sufyan, if you compensate me, I'll carry it out. I know the roads, I know how to get there, I can go undetected, and I can slip in and carry out this mission, if you pay me. Abu Sufyan, he said, you are the exact man for the job. So he gave him a camel for the trip and he gave him some money and told him, you must keep this a secret. You cannot disclose this to anyone because I'm afraid that if anyone else hears of this, it will eventually get back to Muhammad. So the Bedouin says, no one is going to hear about this. It's a one-man mission. So this Bedouin goes off to Medina. He leaves from Mecca, traveling alone, going all the way to Medina, traveling by night. And as soon as he reaches Medina, he's not known to the people, so he's going around and he's asking about the whereabouts of the Prophet ﷺ. And he's told that the Prophet ﷺ went to the clan of Banu Abdul Ashhal Banu Abdul Ashhal They lived on the outskirts of Medina So this man went to that area Until he came to the small masjid in their locality Inside of this small masjid he found The Prophet Sallallahu Sitting with some of his companions And talking As soon as he walks in The Prophet Sallallahu sees him and he says to some of his companions, This man intends deception, and Allah will prevent him. He knew straight away this person did not have good intentions. So the man walks in and he asks, Who of you is Ibn Abdul Muttalib? Who is Ibn Abdul Muttalib? Here is referring to the Prophet. And he says, I am the son of Abdul Muttalib. That's me. And the Bedouin went closer and closer to the Prophet Wasallam, And then he bent over as a person bends over when they want to speak privately with someone. You know, you come to someone and like, let's talk. And as he does that, the Zahabi, the companion, Usayyid ibn Hudayr radiallahu anhu, grabs the man. And he says move away from the Messenger of Allah So he pulls him He grabs his robes like this And when he pulls his robes tightly He uncovers something What does he uncover? He uncovers the dagger beneath the robe Hiding in a sheath So as he pulls the robes he sees the knife And he says وسلم, This person is a traitor he intends evil. Now, why does he say traitor? Because he's coming in uh, under the guise of someone who is peaceful, who, wants, who just wants to talk. But now he's discovered carrying this dagger, and he says, this man is a traitor. So the Bedouin man is now caught. Usaid ibn Hudayr grabbed him up, the dagger is discovered, and now he knows, as we say, the gig is up. So he says, ah, my life, my life, oh Muhammad, you know, spare my life. And the Prophet وسلم, has a conversation with this Bedouin man. He says, tell me the truth. Tell the truth and it will benefit you. And if you lie, I have already been informed of your intention. How does he know of his intention? Through wahi, revelation. Allah has revealed to him the intention of this man to assassinate him. He says, tell the truth, it will benefit you. And if you lie, I already know your intention. So the Bedouin man asks him, will I be spared? And the Prophet ﷺ says, you will be safe. You will not be harmed. And so the man told him exactly what Abu Sufyan promised him. And the Prophet ﷺ told Usayd bin Hudayr, who caught him, to take him to his house, tie him up and keep him as a prisoner. So he goes to his house and he's a prisoner. The next day, the Prophet ﷺ called for this Bedouin man and he's brought out and he says to the man, I have promised you safety. So go wherever you wish or choose what is better than that. Better than just being let go. Now someone who just thought they were going to lose their life Is now given the opportunity to be let go So when your life is in the balance And it's between life and death The option to go free for you is the absolute best option But the Prophet says You are free to go Or he says you can choose what is better than that So this Bedouin is puzzled Well what could be better than that? What could be better than escaping with my life intact? So he asks him, he says, what can be better than that? And the Prophet wasallam says, what is better than that is that you bear witness to La ilaha illallah, Muhammadun Rasulullah. There's no God but Allah and I am his messenger. So this Bedouin was so moved by this experience that he took shahada on the spot. You see how Allah protected Rasulullah wasallam. And the Bedouin said, after becoming Muslim, Wallahi, O oh Muhammad, I have never feared a man. But when I saw you, I lost all of my reason and I weakened. You have been informed of what I intended to do, despite the fact that no one knew, and I beat all of the caravans, meaning I got here secretly. No one saw me. No one could have informed you of my intention or even my approach because I was completely. Undetected getting here Because of this He said I know that you are protected And that what you call to Is haq Is truth And that the party of Abu Sufyan Is the party of Shaitan. So he becomes a Muslim And his life is spared Now the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Smiles at his words And the seerah mentions That this man Who's unnamed He stays for a few days In Medina And then he leaves And he's never heard from again that's, that's all we know about him Where did he go? What tribe was he from? With whom did he settle? That's all we know He became Muslim He left with his life He had Iman And Allah Ta'ala knows Whatever happened to him Where he died Where he's buried We don't know But that assassination was thwarted Because Allah Ta'ala informed Rasulullah Of his intentions But it was still an attempt and that attempt was orchestrated by Abu Sufyan by the Bedouin's very own admission. So the Prophet ﷺ had to respond to this. So what did he do? He sent Amr bin umayyah and Jabbar bin Sakhar on this mission to Mecca to assassinate Abu Sufyan. So they traveled on this secret mission, the two of them, until they reached Mecca. And the, the story in the seerah says that when they reached Mecca, they got there at night time. And Jabbar bin Sakhar said to Amr bin Umayyah, ah, if only we could make tawaf and pray to raka'as. Think about this. Imagine you're in that time. You're on this secret mission. You're there at night. And the mission takes you to Mecca. But you get to the Kaaba. And you want to make tawaf and you want to pray. What do you do? So they say, let's make tawaf and let us pray two rak'ah at least. And so Amr said, once the people have had their dinner, they're going to sit in their courtyards. So that gives us an opportunity to do the tawaf and pray the two rak'ah. And it's nighttime, there's no electricity, so, you know, there's lanterns, but you can pretty much do this and not be observed by others. People won't figure out who you are. So they go and make tawaf and they make the two rak'ahs. And then they go on their mission. They go out looking for Abu Sufyan. And they're going between this street and that street, and they're looking for where he might be. As they're walking through the streets, someone uh, saw Amr bin Umayyah and recognized him. Remember, we've said this many times before, Mecca in that time was a small town. And in small towns, everyone knows everyone. So imagine we're in a small town, and. Brother Khalid Just starts walking Randomly through a street Is there a chance Someone who knows you Is going to see you? Absolutely So someone sees Amr And they know that Amr bin Umayyah Is a Muslim That he's living in Medina If he's a Muslim And he's in Medina Why is he here After what just happened At Uhud? He must be up to no good He's up to good We know But from their perspective He's up to no good So someone spies him And says Ah Amr bin Umayyah, he said they say, Wallahi he doesn't present himself here except for evil. So then Amr bin Umayyah knew that they were discovered. Once someone's identified them, it's only a matter of time before they get the word out and people start looking for them. And if they find them, it's over. They're gonna take them, they're gonna kill them. So Amr bin Umayyah says to Jabbar bin Sakhar, we have to go. We cannot continue with this mission. We're going to get caught let us go and seek safety so they dashed off and they scaled a mountain one of the mountains not far from the Kaaba Uh, and it says scale so we get the understanding that they actually had to climb it not just a a light walk they scaled it and they get to the top of this mountain and they noticed that people were looking for them but they couldn't find them it's under the darkness of night they have the high ground they are concealed so they just waited for people to stop searching for them. And after some time, they managed to make their escape and get back to Medina. So the, the mission wasn't successful, uh, but it was definitely one which they were sent on by the Prophet Sallallahu to respond to this attempted assassination by the Bedouin. So this was in the fourth year of the Hijrah, uh, in the fourth year of the Hijrah, not too long after Uhud. Another incident that took place in the month of Safar, in the fourth year of the Hijrah, is another disaster that struck the Ummah. And this disaster was worse than what happened at the well of Rajir, And in fact, it was the worst massacre of the companions that is reported, recorded in the entire Seerah. Like, there's battles, there's loss of life in battles, there's the massacre at Rajir. And then there's this one, which has the single largest loss of life of the companions in the entire sirah And that is the massacre that occurred at Bir Mauna. Uh, Bir Mauna is in the Nejd. Where is the Nejd? Nope, that's the south. The Najd is in the eastern highlands. So Najd literally means highlands. And if you look on the map of Arabia, You'll see Mecca here, Medina here. The Najd is over here, at least from from my vantage point. For you, it would be to the uh, right of Mecca and Medina in the highlands of the Najd. Uh, today, like what's the capital of Saudi Arabia? Riyadh. Riyadh is the center of Najd. So Riyadh, uh, Buraidah, Qasim, like that whole area. Right, Banu Tamim. There's other tribes too. Uh, that is the Najd. And there are several... Incidents we hear in the seerah about the people of Najd. There's also statements of the Prophet ﷺ about the Najd in general and the role that region will play in Fitna that will affect the Muslims and others. But this was in the fourth year and it's known as the incident of Bir Mauna or the well of Mauna in the Najd. So it was around the same time as the incident of Raji'ah. Uh, so it was, it was after it, but as we'll see, the angel Jibreel salam conveyed the salams of Sayyidina Khabbab when he was killed in Mecca at the same time as this massacre occurred. So the, the news of the massacre reached the Prophet wasallam the same day Jibreel informed him of what happened to Khabbab. So these are two tragedies that happen at different times, but he finds out about them on the same day. So, what happened here? Now, in the seerah, we learn that there was a man by the name of Abu al-Bara, Amir ibn Madik. Uh, And there's lots of Amirs, by the way. Some good and some bad in the seerah. Uh, Several of them. This man was Abu al-Bara, that's his kunya, Amir ibn Madik. And he was the chief of the tribe of Banu Amr ibn Sa'asa' of the Najd. And he had a nickname. His nickname was Mula'ib al-Asinna, which means the one who plays with spears. The one who plays with spears. And these are people of the Najd. He's a tribal leader. And the seerah accounts tell us that he presented the Prophet ﷺ with a gift. But the Prophet ﷺ refused to accept the gift and told him, Ya Abul bara I do not accept gifts from Mushrikun, so embrace Islam if you want me to accept your gift. That's in one narration. Another narration says that Abu al-Bara's nephew named Labid ibn Rabi'ah, brought the gift of the Prophet ﷺ on behalf of his uncle, but the Prophet ﷺ denied the gift, and Labid said to the Prophet ﷺ, My uncle Abu bara sent me to ask you to help cure him from Dubayla. I don't know what the word in English for Dubayla is, but it's a, it's a really bad skin condition, and it can sometimes be fatal. Hmm? It's kind of like Judam, yeah, kind of like Judam. I don't know what the difference would be between leprosy and Dubela, because Judah is leprosy. Dubela is something similar. Basically, Dubela, in the books, they say it's when it's some condition that causes lots of boils to uh, appear on the body, not just eczema or other skin rashes. It's much worse. He had that, and so his nephew said that. Uh, my uncle sent me to you to ask that you help cure him of dubayla so the prophet sallallahu wasallam took a piece of dry clay and he did the nephith, which we've described before in the shama'i we don't say spit it is the mixture between air and saliva right there's there's three levels here that's kind of in the middle so like this he did the nephith on the piece of dry clay, and he told his nephew, take this and pour some water on it and give that water for him to drink. So he goes back and he does this, and Abu al-Bara drinks the water, and he's cured of Dubela. Now his story comes up later in the seerah, and we see how he dies, but that's what happened in the early stages. He's cured of this. And the Prophet ﷺ uh, gave da'wah to this individual, Abu al-Bara, and he explained to him the rewards that Allah Ta'ala has promised in store for those who have Iman. Now Abu al bara did not take an adversarial approach to the Prophet. He didn't accept Islam, but he also didn't reject it outhand. Instead, he said to his people to the Prophet, Oh Muhammad, what you call to is good. And if you were to send some of your companions to the people of Nejd and call to your religion, I think they would respond. So you see now what's happening. This is the lead up to Sahaba actually going there. So he says, if they come and call to your religion, I think my people would actually respond. What did the Prophet say? He said to him, I fear for them from the people of Nejd. And so Abu al-Bara said to him, I will be their protector. Send them so they can call them to this message of yours. I will be their protector, their guarantor. He's a tribal chief. And remember, the tribal chiefs can do that. If they offer protection to a person or people, the rest of the tribesmen have to respect that. So the question we have to ask here is, was Abu al-Bara being honest? Was he trying to uh, double-cross the Prophet ﷺ and draw Sahaba into a trap? Or was he honestly extending this invitation to receive Sahaba so they could do da'wah and call people to Allah Ta'ala freely? He was honest. He was not trying to trick the Prophet ﷺ at all. And we know this, this system exists. And it was honest on his part. However, what he didn't know at the time. Uh, Abu al-Bara. What he didn't know at the time is that there was another chief from another tribe of the Najd who didn't care about these tribal norms and who was uh, bent on attacking the Muslims and was willing to violate their tribal customs to kill Muslims even if they had the protection of another tribe. They were willing to forego the tribal norms and kill Muslims and that is because of an individual, a tribesman, a leader of another tribe in the Najd, by the name of Amr, another Amr, Amr bin Tufail, Amr bin Tufail. he's the one responsible here. It wasn't Abu Dhabara. Uh, Amr bin Tufail. it said that he came to Medina before this. And he had uh, an argument with the Prophet wasallam. So this, the seerah says that the Prophet wasallam gave him da'wah, Called him to Islam But this man only agreed to accept Islam If the Prophet Sallallahu Would in return allow him to take charge Over all of the tribes of the Najd All of the Bedouins And also make him the leader After the Prophet Sallallahu passes away Imagine this the Person says I will not accept Islam Unless I become the ruler of everybody After all of this this is obviously something that is unacceptable. So the Prophet ﷺ refused that. This angered Amr bin Tufayl. So he shouted at the Prophet ﷺ saying, I will gather my men and horses against you. I will come after you. That was his threat. This happened before Abu al bara before Abu Bara invited the Prophet wasallam to send Sahaba to the Najd for da'wah. So when Amr returned to the Najd, Amr bin Tufail, he began to rouse some of the tribes and clans to get their support against the Prophet them, And when those Sahaba would arrive at the Najd, that was his golden opportunity to get some revenge. Because it's way out in the Najd, and he made this promise and he's going to carry it out. So this, you you understand from the seerah that the invitation of Abu al-Bara presented the Prophet ﷺ with a very great opportunity, but also one that has inherent risk, great risk. It's a great opportunity because the najd is quite large. There's so many tribes, so many people. And if they are able to go there and call people to Allah and they embrace Islam, there's large tribes that will become Muslim. This will be a complete game changer politically as well. Guidance would spread and Quraysh would be thwarted even more. It's a golden opportunity, but it's also a great threat because it's so far away. And there's no guarantee that they will not be attacked. Although Abu al promises this protection, there's still, still a threat. So... The Prophet وسلم, agreed to send Sahaba to the Najd under the guarantee of protection offered by al bara And the Prophet ﷺ sent 70 of the very best Qurra of the Muslims. Now Qurra means reciter. And in early Islamic history, the word uh, Qurra, the plural of Qari, means not just one who recites the Qur'an. The early usage of Qurra uh, referred to people of learning as well. Right? When you, you read the stories in history about the Qurra, the Qur'an this, the Qur'an that, these are people of Qur'an, people who have knowledge of the Sunnah and Islam in general. So these are 70. And they, it describes them it says that they would recite the Qur'an in the masjid of the Prophet wasallam by day and by night they would go outside and recite to each other. And they would pray at night. And they would gather firewood and they would gather water at night when it's cool. And at daybreak they would bring that fresh water to the masjid and they would sell firewood that they had collected through the night. And they would use the money from the firewood sales to purchase food and they would give that food to the Ahlul sufa, those individuals from the Sahaba who were living in the masjid, who didn't have homes, who didn't have the, net, the family networks that would allow them to build homes and create families. They were very poor. In fact, many of these Qurra themselves were from Ahlul suffa from some muhajirin and many ansar uh, were among them. So it's a mixed group. So they would also take the firewood, they would collect at night and they would uh, sell some and they would take other bits of firewood and they would bring it to the homes of the wives of the Prophet Alaihi Wasallam. just give it for free. So these were individuals of great piety. Uh, they were people of ibadah and people of khidmah. They combined these two virtues of pious devotions between them and Allah and also khidmah, service, uh, doing good to other people. And of those people, 70 of them were selected to travel to the Najd so they could teach the Qur'an, teach the message of Islam, teach them the ethics of the deen, live among the people, and be carriers of this message so that hopefully people will embrace guidance. Now, when we look at the seerah now, we may look at 70 as a relatively small number. But how many people were there at the Battle of Uhud? 700. 70 out of 700 is what percentage? It's 10%. So this is literally 10% of those Muslims who were uh, at the forefront in defending Islam. 10% is a massive number for that time. So 70 of them go. They travel all the way to the Najd. And the seerah mentions that when this group of 70 Qurra reached the well of Ma'una, they sent a letter with one of them, uh, Haram ibn Milhad. Uh, He had a letter and he's the uncle of Anas. Uh, He has this letter that was written on behalf of the Prophet ﷺ to be read to Amr bin Tufayl, that avowed enemy who promised to attack so Haram ibn Minhan takes this letter, what does that make him? It makes him an ambassador, it makes him a rasul, an emissary, an envoy. And what is the norm across all civilizations with respect to ambassadors? They're protected. Arrasoolu la That is a rule, all right? So he goes to present this letter that was written on behalf of the Prophet wasallam. He's with two other Sahaba from the 70s. And he says to them, stay close while I, I go nearer. So if they kill me, you can go and warn the rest. So the rest of them are back here. Three of them go to the encampment of Amr bin Tufayl. Haram ibn Milhan has the letter and he says, you, you guys stay back. So if I get attacked, it's just me. And you, you see it and you can go back and warn the rest of us. So Haram ibn Minhan goes up to the encampment of Amr ibn Fufayl. And he addresses them as the people of Bi'r Ma'una. O people of the well of Ma'una. I am a Rasul, a messenger, an emissary. We use in Arabic the word is rasool. <laughs> we say messenger. Don't, we don't say messenger with a capital M. We, hear, we mean here an ambassador, an envoy a representative of the Prophet Sallallahu under protection delivering a message. Will you grant me safety while I deliver this message? So he's asking explicitly for the aman, the, the granting of safety. He begins to speak with them. And the narration says uh, that Amr bin Tufayl didn't even read the letter of the Prophet he turned away from the letter, and as Haram ibn Milhan was speaking, Amr bin Tufail, he gives this gesture or this signal to one of the men in the group, and this man goes behind Haram ibn Milhan and literally stabs him in the back with a spear. It pierces him from the back and it comes out from the front. Haram ibn Han, this sahabi, going on this long journey, he sees the spear pierce through him and he sees it in front of him. What is his immediate reaction? He lets out this loud shout and he says, Fuztu wa وَرَبِّ Ka'aba." I have triumphed by the Lord of the Ka'aba. He was literally joyous. Imagine a person who's joyous when a spear pierces through them. And says, ka'ba. I, am, I have triumphed by the Lord of the Kaaba. It's very shocking, that kind of reaction. So we understand very clearly that the action of Amr bin Tufayl, even by the norms of the Jahili Arabs, was very sleazy. It was a very low down action. Because, number one, Haram ibn Milhan is an emissary, is an ambassador. Ambassadors are not to be harmed. Number two, he had that guarantee of protection from Abu al-Bara, didn't he? Abu al-Bara, this tribal chief, guaranteed the 70, the Aman, on his behalf as tribal chief, they are protected. So, Amr ibn Tufayl has no right to violate that guarantee of protection offered by this other tribal leader. And what's interesting is that in Ibn Hisham's seerah, it mentions that Abu al-Bara was the uncle of Hamr bin Tufail. So on top of it, it is the younger going against the elder. It's the nephew violating the aman granted by the uncle. So there's that issue too. And lastly, the way Amr bin Tufayl had Haram ibn Milhan killed was very sneaky. It wasn't a direct confrontation where he had a chance to even defend himself. He just gave this signal and a man literally stabbed him in the back. So by all accounts, this was a very sleazy action on, on uh, the part of Amr bin Tufayl. But now this is done. He killed Haram ibn Minhan radiallahu anhu. And he has to see this through to the end. He wants to go and get the rest of them. The other 69 Sahaba that came there with that guarantee of protection. So there are seven, there's 69 others. What does he do? Haram ibn Minhan sends a message to some of the other clans in the region asking them to come to his support to come and finish off the remaining companions. Now these other clans, they are sensitive to the situation they understand that abu al-bara gave them a guarantee of protection so by the tribal norms most of these clans were unwilling to support amr bin tufail in attacking these muslims so they backed out and we're not going to do it but some of them who were closer to amr bin tufail agreed to it and it was three clans in particular that joined with amr bin tufail in massacring these sahaba and they were the clans of usayya, of Ra'al, and Dhaquan. These three names are going to come up again. Uh, usayya, Ra'al, and Zakwan. These clans brought about 400 to 500 people to join with Amr bin Tufail and his men to kill the rest of those companions that were at Bi'r, Bir Ma'una. They went to them and surrounded them. Four to five hundred against sixty-nine. When those Muslims saw them, they grabbed their swords and they said, Ya Allah, O oh Allah, relay our salams to the Prophet wasallam and inform him of our situation. That was their dua. Now, are they going to defend themselves? Absolutely, they are. But are they equipped to defend themselves against 500 men? They're not. Don't think that they traveled without arms. They did. That was the norm back then. But they're just carrying swords and maybe some bows and and arrows. They're not coming equipped for a battle. They weren't expecting a battle. So they have their swords, but it's not going to be enough to defend against four to 500 people who are well-armed, on horses and camels, with spears, with more weaponry and more numbers. Now, one of the interesting things we find in the Sierra account of this massacre is that of the 70, some of them had tribal relations with some of these tribes of the Najd. Meaning their, their tribal affiliation goes back to some of these tribes. So they're kind of like kin. Most of them were not, but there were some. And those few sahaba from the group that had tribal affiliation to some of those tribes were actually offered a chance to be protected. So some of those people are saying, you, know, "You and you and you, you you guys are from us. We'll protect you, but not these." What did those sahaba do? They refused that protection because they're not going to receive this protection and save their own skins at the expense of their brothers. So they refused the offer of protection and defended themselves along with the others. But eventually, in that attack. All of these 70 were killed, except for three. One of whom is eventually killed, one of whom escapes, and the other of whom is captured and released and makes his way back to Medina. What are their stories? The rest of them are killed. Of those three that survived, the first one we have is Ka'ab ibn Zaid. Ka'b ibn Zayd radiallahu anhu was wounded and he fell unconscious. But others were being killed too. And eventually he was beneath their bodies and unconscious. So the others, they thought that he was killed too and they didn't finish him off. And he eventually regained his consciousness and managed to escape. And he was later killed at the Battle of Khandaq. But he survived this attack managed to make his way back to medina but there were two others that were captured there was amr bin umayyah and we know about him cuz we just talked about him he did, he was on that mission there was amr bin umayyah right and he is he's a muhajir that's how he was recognized in mecca cuz he's from the people and the other one the third one was al mundhir ibn muhammad al mundhir ibn muhammad was ansari So you have an Ansari and a Muhajir, both of whom are captured among the 70. Amr and Mundir, how is it that they got captured and didn't get killed? Well, the Seerah tells us that when the attack was going on, Amr and Mundir weren't with the group. They were off at some distance, far away, with some of the livestock they brought on the journey. Because you have to bring food, right? Think about it, if you're traveling like that, you bring an anim- You bring some animals, you can kill the sheep, kill this, kill that, cook it up and eat it, you have food. So they're tending to that livestock, taking them to graze where they can eat. And the seerah mentions that as they were out there, they noticed vultures hovering near at the distance. And when they saw that, they realized something had happened. And they said to each other, our companions have been killed. Ya Rahman, our companions have been killed. They realized something had happened. And so they rushed to get back. And when they get back, they see the bodies of all of these Sahaba and they see the ground soaked in blood. But when they get there and they see the bodies, they discuss, what what should we do? This is after the massacre. Because the massacre occurs, it takes time for the vultures to appear and hover over these bodies, so they get there. They see the bodies and they discuss what they should do. Amr bin umayyah anhu, says, "I think we should go back to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi and tell him about this calamity that happened. Let's go back so we can tell him, get reinforcements, and we can come back and we can respond to this attack." Meanwhile, Mundir, he says, "As for me." I will not give up being in the place where my companions have been killed. And I don't want other people telling my story. Uh, You know, as someone who didn't avenge them, who didn't try to respond. So he's expressing this desire to go out after the attackers, even if it means he's cut down in battle and martyred. So Mundir is encouraging Amr to go with him and get this revenge. So they decide to go and See what they can do so they walk and walk and walk until they get nearby and when they get near to the tribe that committed the massacre they're outnumbered they're basically captured they're caught now the seerah mentions that eventually uh, mundhir ibn muhammad anhu was killed but that amr bin Umayyah was allowed to go they released him why would they release him they already killed 69 people why would they or sixty-eight? Why would they let him go? Well, the seerah accounts, Ibn Hishab and others, mention the background to this. They say that uh, Amr bin Tufayl's mother had taken a vow that she would free a slave. And back then, even among the Jahiri Arabs, their word was sacrosanct. If they say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. They didn't say like people do today. I'm gonna do something and they don't do it. Their word was bombed. So the, the mother of Amr bin Tufayl made a vow, another that she's going to free a slave. And so Amr decided because now Amr uh, Amir bin Tufayl has captured Amr ibn Umayyah and being captured, he's essentially a slave now. So he decides, Amr bin Tufayl decides he's going to free Amr bin Umayyah uh, in order to fulfill the vow of his mother, because she's unable to. So he lets Amr ibn Umayyah go. Uh, there are some accounts that suggest that he also released him, so that word would get back to the Prophet وسلم, about what happened. Because he doesn't know that uh, Ka'b bin Zayd survived. As far as he's concerned, Amr ibn Umayyah is the lone survivor. So if he lets him go, He fulfills the vow of his mother And the message gets back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam That's that's the kind of person That Amr bin Tufayr was So He lets him go In the seerah we don't get the details About All of the sahaba who were killed And how the battle was We just know they were massacred Because they were completely outnumbered But we do have a couple of stories About individuals who were killed one of them is another Amir. There's lots of Amirs today. And this one is Amir ibn Fuhayra. Amir ibn Fuhayra. He was killed at this massacre of Bi'r Mauna, but his body wasn't found. They know he was killed. They saw his body. But it disappeared. And in Sahih al-Bukhari, we have a narration in which the Prophet Alaihi Wasallam says, The angels buried Amr bin Fuhayra and placed him in the Iliyyin, in the, the highest reaches of paradise, his soul. The killer of Ibn Fuhayra was a man by the name of Jabbar ibn Salma. Not to be confused with Jabbar ibn Sakhra. It's one of the problems of sirah is the names of all the people and the tribes and the interrelatedness between the tribes and the clans and the family lines. It gets very confusing. So you're forgiven for getting confused about names. It's okay. So Jabbar ibn Salma of the Najd is the one who killed Amr ibn Fuhayra, not Jabbar ibn Sakhra. Um, Now Jabbar ibn Salma later becomes a Muslim. And that's how we know the story. Jabbar ibn Salma becomes a Muslim. And he tells his conversion story in the context of what happened at Bi'r Mauna. He says in this narration, I stabbed him with my spear between his shoulders and I saw the tip of the spear when it emerged from his chest. And I heard him say something when I stabbed him. Now, what did Haram ibn Milhan say, the messenger, when he brought the letter, and he was stabbed. Fustu warabil Kaaba. I have triumphed by the Lord of the Kaaba. Well, Jabbar bin Salama says, when I stabbed Ahmed bin Fuhayra with the spear, I heard him say, Fustu warabil Kaaba. The same thing. This tells you that it was common among them. This this understanding that this is the real triumph. He said. I have triumphed by the Lord of the Kaaba. So Jabbar ibn Salma says, I ask myself, how can he say that he triumphed? I killed him. You know, in the, on the material plane, if you judge it just on the material, the dunyawi uh, perspective and measure, if you die, you failed. If you live, you succeeded. So he's asking himself, how can he say, I have triumphed. If you triumphed, wouldn't you be the winner in this battle? Wouldn't I be the one who was killed and you're the one who survived? So he's very puzzled by this statement. How can someone say that? So he continues, I went to Bahak ibn Sufyan al-Kilabi, who was a Muslim, and I asked him, what does this phrase mean? What does this mean when someone says, I have triumphed by the Lord of the Kaaba. And Buhak ibn Sufyan says it means that he's expressing joy that he has attained Jannah, the gardens of Paradise. Uh, and here uh, Jabbar ibn Salma says, uh, "O, you know, he was he was unsure. Did he say?" Because he's attained Jannah Or he said that because he attained Shahada But the meaning is the same So this is the explanation So when he hears the explanation from Bahaq, He says Well If that's the case Then he truly has triumphed And then Bahaq He says use that opportunity that, that curiosity To give him da'wah To call him to Islam He gives him da'wah Allah softens his heart and he embraces Islam at the hands of Dahaq ibn Sufyan al-Kilabi after killing the Sahabi. And he says, I embraced Islam uh, after speaking with Dahaq, And it was what I witnessed of the death of Amr ibn Fuhairah and his being lifted high in the sky that compelled me to do so. Now remember the body wasn't found after It literally Was taken away And he saw that and heard this And his heart was moved by this Experience and he became Muslim So there are people who became Muslim After attacking And after killing Some of the best of the Sahaba And this is played out in history Where some of the worst people At the time were attacking And killing people And through those very same people, they are eventually guided to Islam. You had it happen with the Mongols, you had it happen with others, and it even happens today, right? Uh, There's one story, some of you may have heard the story. It's one of these very interesting stories, uh, true story. Uh, There was an individual, uh, I knew him many years ago. He was from California living in Atlanta at the time, in the 90s. He was an ex-con, and he, he, used, he walked with you know these, the walker, not the full walker, but the two pieces, because he was semi-crippled from the waist down. And the reason why is he was shot about seven or eight times, living, you know, living the gang life back in his jahiliya. He was a crip. Uh, part of the, the, the gang the Crips and he moved to Atlanta practicing Muslim you know comes to the masjid and is learning with us and one, and his name is Abdul Rahman and he comes to the masjid one day and he looks so shocked like so, something happened that left him so shocked and bewildered and he shared with us something that happened to him that day. He said that uh, on his way to the masjid, he was on the bus. As he got on the bus, he walked past this Muslim, identifiable Muslim. He gives him salams, salamu alaykum, Wa alaykum salam, and they start talking. And as they're talking on the bus ride, he picks up the accent of this other Muslim. It's a California accent. He is from California. And, so well, you're, from, you're from Cali. Yeah. So what part? Now, when, if you're from California, if you're from that region, and you ask what part, you're asking what street. When you ask what street, you are also asking what set you identify with. What, you know, which gang do you run with? So he says, I'm from this or that street. Rahman says, I am from this and that street. So this Muslim used to be a blood, the rival gang with the Crips. He is a former Crips. So now you have a, a, a former blood and a former Crip, both now Muslim, and they're just talking, getting to know each other. And the former blood says, uh, what was your gang name back in the day? Because they didn't go by their, proper legal names, they would go by nicknames. So, Rahman said to him, my name was XYZ. You know, this or that gang name. And he says, as soon as I said that, the former blood looked at me, shocked. His eyes were large, and he said, that's you? You shot me. You guys rolled up on this street and you know in this area, and you did a drive-by shooting at so-and-so's house. Uh, he said, "Yeah, yeah, you shot me." But it's all good. Allah brought us together in Islam. So, subhanallah, these things happen. You know, you have a sahabi now who had killed a previous who killed a sahabi, and it's all wiped away with Islam. Subhanallah. So that is what happens in the story of uh, Jabbar ibn Salma who killed Amr ibn Fuhairah. Now, the news of this eventually reaches the Prophet ﷺ. And when he received the news of this, it was the exact same day that Jibreel ﷺ brought him the news of what happened to khabbab in Mecca who was killed. We remember that story from last week. So he's hearing... Uh, the devastating news from Mecca as well as the Najd in the same moment. That's when he receives both of their stories. And he says to the Sahaba, your companions have been struck down and they ask their Lord, O Lord, inform our brethren on our behalf that we are pleased with you and you with us. The news also reached Abu al Remember him? He was honest in his offer. He didn't intend to double-cross the Muslims. He offered them legitimate protection. And news of what happened eventually reached Abu al as well. And he was furious. He was grieved at Amr bin Tufayl's betrayal. And what happened, he felt due to him. He's taking, he feels, part of the blame in this happening. Because it was because... He invited them and gave the guarantee of protection That they went there in the first place So he's feeling enraged He's feeling grief over what happened to those Muslims And the Seerah says The Seerah accounts mention that He died shortly after this That's all we know He died Now after this happened You have poets of the Sahaba Such as Hassan ibn Thabit, Who begins to compile the hija poetry the invective poetry stirring abu al-bara against amr bin tufail and others uh, basically attacking him in poetry for his betrayal His this poetry of course has a way of getting out it has a way of traveling and being uh, reproduced and people memorize it and they read it and we've talked about how that stirs emotions So that poetry of Hassan ibn Thabit attacking Amr ibn Tufayl eventually reaches another tribesman by the name of Rabi'ah ibn Amr ibn Malik, another Amr. And this person was so angry when he heard the poetry that he went out, found Amr ibn Tufayl as he was riding on his horse and he stabbed him with his spear, uh, piercing his thigh, causing him to fall off the horse. Now Amr bin Tufayl, he falls off the horse, he's wounded in the thigh, and he says, this is the doing of Abu al-Bara. This is all his fault. You did this? Abu al-Bara didn't do this. But he's saying this is the fault of Abu al-Bara. If I die, then my blood is for my uncle. Who is his uncle? Abu al-Bara, remember? If I die, then my blood is for my uncle. He deals with that. Let no one else follow up on this. And let's not continue with this. Let's not let it become something bigger than it was. And it was already huge. He says, if I live, I will decide what to do concerning this. Now what happens with Ahmed bin Tufayl? Well, we're going to tell his story much later in the seerah when we get to the section on the delegates of the Najd, uh, the delegates of Banu Amr bin Sa'asa. We're going to talk about him. Uh, he didn't have a good end, let's put it that way. So the Prophet وسلم, is filled with grief over what happened. And the seerah mentions that for an entire month after this incident, he is praying qunut and making dua against those who killed these sahaba. And he mentions these tribes by name in the qunut dua. He mentions uh, usayya and Ri'l and Dhakwan. In the tabaqat of Ibn Sa'ad. We find a narration in which the Prophet ﷺ prayed against them in each of the five prayers, not just one prayer. Imagine, uh, there's some question about the authenticity of the hadith, but it's there. And if it is authentic, it tells us that he's doing qunut in every single prayer for an entire month, making dua against those tribes who uh, betrayed these Muslims and massacred them. Uh, in that narration, he says also, O oh Allah, guide Banu Amir and avenge me from Amr bin Tufail." And that went on for a month. Now the story is wrapped up when we look at the lone survivor. The lone survivor of this massacre was Amr bin Umayyah. He is released by Amr bin Tufail, and he makes his way back to Medina. As he gets back to the outskirts of Medina, he's not there yet, he's on the outskirts, when he meets two men, two strangers. And these two strangers are from guess what tribe? Banu Amir, meaning the people of Amr bin Tufayd. They're from the Najd. He was seeking shade under a tree in the outskirts of Medina on a very hot day. These two men come up and seek shade under the very same tree. And they get to talking and he finds out that they're from the Nejd, they're from the tribe. They weren't involved. they had no- So they're resting under this shade. Now, this is serious. This is absolutely haram. So he kills them. But he's thinking that he has avenged Mundir, his friend, and he has avenged those other Sahaba that were massacred and betrayed. And he does what he does. When he gets back to Medina, inside the city, he tells the Prophet ﷺ what happened to these two men. And the Prophet ﷺ says, It is an awful thing that you have done. They had a guarantee of protection from me. So I will pay their blood money and he paid the blood money to those families because of what Amr ibn Umayyad did. So this tells us something very important. The Prophet wasallam is just. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And blind revenge is not allowed. People who are related to or somehow connected to the, uh, the offending party do not receive the same punishment as those who participate directly in the offense. You can't just attack people like that just because they happen to have the same affiliation, the same tribe, the same people, same family. Only the guilty parties should be punished for these things. And what he did was wrong. And the Prophet corrected him for this and had to pay the blood money on the behalf of those two individuals who were killed. So this in, is the two major incidents that happened in that part of the fourth year of the Hijrah. After this comes the... Incident with Banu Nadir And The prohibition of alcohol And we're going to talk about Those and other issues inshallah next week bi Ta'ala The story of Banu Nadir is quite long It may just be that and maybe the alcohol issue We'll see But that's where we start next week bi Wallahu Allah Wa Allahu wa sallallahu wa sallam Ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam